One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Stephen. I'm Anoush. And I'm Alpha. And on this week's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by Vince Cable to discuss his new book and the future of Labour and the Liberal Democrats. And you ask us, what's the deal with the plan to increase the size of Britain's nuclear arsenal? So we're joined this week by Vince Cable, who I imagine requires no introduction to our listeners, former business secretary, former leader of the Liberal Democrats, and the author of, of many books, including the forthcoming Money and Power, the story of various world leaders and how they have changed economics, starting with Alexander Hamilton, who fans of, of, of musicals and uh, finance will both be familiar with, all the way up to, to Donald Trump. Uh, so thank you very much for, for joining us. Good, thank you. So I, I thought it was interesting, we'll talk about the book and we'll talk about politics in general, but the kind of... I think most people, because of the musical Hamilton, will understand Hamilton. People will understand, you know, the presence of, of Margaret Thatcher, Vladimir Lenin. But Donald Trump, I think, is someone whose effect on the changing nature of economic policy, I think, is not yet fully understood by most people. So why Trump? The decision to include Trump was something of a judgment call. I mean, he's not a serious economic thinker. And his effects are probably malign rather than benign. But nonetheless, he has changed, or seems to have changed, the, the paradigm within which we operate. I mean, until Trump, there was an assumption that there is something we call an international economic order, a set of rules, particularly around trade, the World Trade Organization, the whole post-war architecture. And he knocked it down. And now you could argue that this is just a, a blip and that now we have a, a more serious administration in the United States, we'll return to what you might call normal. But I don't think that's the case, because the thinking about protectionism in trade policy has carried over from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. That's one of the few areas of consensus in America. And that is going to change the way which we operate, and it affects the role of China in the global system, and the relationship between the United States and the European Union, indeed the whole assumption of an open international economic system. It's really interesting that you mentioned that economic consensus forming, because it strikes me that the heart of your book is, when you go through the different leaders, is the tension between the commitment to isms and political reality. And I wonder if you were able to draw any conclusions from the leaders that you were analysing about which sort of trumps which. Yes, you're right. I mean, a lot of the people I describe were 
people were operating in an intellectual climate, an ism, if you like. Uh, some people swam with the tide, some tried to change it. Margaret Thatcher is a good example of introduced an ism. You know, we still talk about Thatcherism mm. and the bundle of ideas associated with that in terms of deregulation, privatization, open economies, until very recently, was, was very much the prevailing orthodoxy mm. and had its counterpart in Reaganism at the other side of the Atlantic. Others were in the same mode. I mean, I look, for example, at Belcherevitz and the most radical of the Big Bang reformers in Eastern Europe operating, if you like, within an ism. Uh, here's a former communist who studied Milton Friedman, Hayek, the kind of orthodox free market process and uh, swam with the ism, made it happen. And another of my characters who was Erhardt in, in Germany came into power with a very clear ideological framework, an ism, uh, which he uh, developed during the interwar years as a kind of free market liberal, kept it fairly quiet in Nazi Germany, but survived, kept his nose clean and came to power and pushed through the kind of economic policies which framed post-war Germany, including a lot of what remains today in the form of so-called liberalism. But quite a few of the characters I looked at were highly pragmatic, were not terribly interested in isms. Peel, for example, in the UK, who launched Britain on the road to free trade for a couple of centuries, was an orthodox, rather reactionary Tory, I mean, you know, the old school, and probably the most reactionary governments in modern history post the Napoleonic Wars. He was very much involved in all that, but but he understood the pressures that were being building up in in the cities, and he very skillfully uh, put through very radical reforms, spit his party in the process, but but you know created facts on the ground, not on the basis of theory, but um, political reality. Another, in the same vein, in a way, was I looked at Bismarck, who you don't normally think of as a sort of economic thinker at all wasn't what he was personally interested in. But nonetheless, by being at the right place at the right time, by making the right call, he did some really major economic transformations. He brought in the sulfurine, which ultimately provided the model for the European common market, brought in very much the, you know, the, the protectionist protection of heavy industry, which is the basis of German industrialization. And latterly, was the first statesman to bring in a, a welfare state, somewhat ahead of the UK. And this was somebody who swam with the ideological tides of the day. I'm sure you began work on the book long before the coronavirus pandemic began, but I'm also sure that you were, were finishing it as we began to observe this really extraordinary time with a, a huge global health crisis and economic crisis. I wonder how that playing out in the background shaped writing the book or, or your reflections on those people? And also, what particular lessons would you bring to bear for, for this new economic crisis? Well, I, I, I not just started, but finished the book before the, the pandemic had really, really got underway. In fact, I was writing quite a lot of it in the House of Commons library before, before the end of the last parliament. But I, I think I mean, there are some things that are coming through very clearly from the pandemic response. 
And one of them is the importance of big government, uh, decisive intervention by government in times of acute crisis. I did a, a chapter on Roosevelt mm. and in a way, somewhat similar situation. It wasn't a pandemic, but it was a major economic collapse. And he himself was not a, quote, Keynesian, explicit repudiated Keynesian economics, was a great believer in balanced budget and attacked the Republicans for being too liberal in their spending. But he recognized the severity of the situation, called for active government in all kinds of different ways, and particularly a a big shift in, in America towards uh, what we'd re later recognize in Europe as a welfare state, and did enormous things. And later on in his presidency, he did adopt what we now call Keynesian economics, though it was very much against the grain where he was personally concerned. So, you know, pandemics like the crisis of 1929-30 produced a big shift in the way we think about things. And uh, that's in a way why politicians are important, because the question of whether they respond adequately to the crisis in front of them. One of the things I think is in interesting about the kind of situation we're in now, right, where we have both the deepest recession since the 18th century, but also kind of the most unusual recession, because it's a recession partially at least chosen by governments and chosen by people in a way than few recessions properly are, which is obviously to this huge debate about the extent and necessity of of a fiscal stimulus. Do you think then, and obviously Rishi Sunak has, has, has kind of erred on the side that we don't need a particularly large stimulus as we come out of the crisis. Do you think that's sort of the right decision? Or do you think we might look back on the budget just gone as a sort of major, major missed opportunity? I think that the Biden stimulus, I'm sure, was correctly calibrated. And the fact that his Treasury Secretary and others who are very much part of that sort of rather orthodox tradition of economic policymaking gone along with it, I think rather reinforces the idea that the Americans have been absolutely right to err on the side of too much rather than too little. And I you know, very much support that. Whether it would require repeating in a year's time, we simply don't know. I think the UK position is a bit different. I mean, our economy is fundamentally weaker we have this big problem. The Americans don't have to the same extent of chronically low productivity. Uh, simply pumping more demand into the British economy probably wouldn't have the same beneficial effects as in the United States or indeed in the Eurozone. But yeah, I think as, at this moment in time, it's right to run an expansionary fiscal policy. I think it could be more ambitious than they have done. I mean, what worries me is not so much what, what's happened in the last few weeks, but what the government seems to be preparing for, because we've got tax increases coming down the track quite quickly, notably in the form of council tax, which you know, bears on ordinary families. And the government is clearly lining up quite serious uh, controls on public spending. We've seen it in areas like overseas aid, but I think it's affecting many areas of the, of the government budget. And there is a risk, I think, in the UK that the clampdown, which is clearly coming, is too soon. Moving sort of away a bit from, from the, the book itself, yeah, obviously you're no longer a direct day-to-day uh, -day participant in Westminster politics, but it's a particularly difficult time at the moment in the polls, both for uh, the Liberal Democrats and for the Labour Party. How do you think the various progressive parties, how do you think their leaders are doing and what could they be doing differently in the present time, do you think? 
Well, I, I, I am retired. I'm not, uh, I have no role as a spokesman. And indeed, I frequently say things that are inconvenient to my former colleagues. So <laughs> this is very much a, a sort of personal view. I think we, both we, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party, have to be patient. Um, and I think the recent attacks on the on Sikhir Starmer were completely unjustified. He's operating in a very unusual environment in which almost the exclusive issue is at the moment, particularly now Brexit's gone, is the uh, pandemic and you know how we respond to that in terms of health policy and the public mood. And that's not a basis to judge how future elections will be fought. So I, he's got to be given time and my external judgment for what it's worth, he seems to be doing a reasonably good job. And I would say the same about Ed Davies as well, though he, he gets far, little, far less public attention. I think in terms of where we go from here, as far as the Lib Dems are concerned, I mean, the priority is, and I think it's true of the Labour Party, which is rebuilding a local base. The Lib Dems lost most of their uh, local government's infrastructure in the coalition years. And in the period I was leader, 2019, we had a very good result, but you need several years of that to get back to the pre at 2010 position, and that's the first priority. And I would guess the Labour Party also has got quite a lot of territory to, to recover. So that, that would be my first priority. And I think the second, thinking ahead to the next general election, a long way away, uh, mood and situation may be utterly different, but I think there has to be an implicit understanding that the so-called progressive parties are on the same side. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody is seriously thinking about electoral pacts of the kind that we had in 2019 with the Lib Dems, the Greens and Plaid Cymru. I, I don't think Labour supporters or Lib Dem or other supporters would go along with that. But an implicit pact of the kind that we had in 1997, when, well, in this case, the vast majority of seats that could be won are Labour targets, but some, I don't know, we're talking maybe 30 plus existing seats, could be the Lib Dems, there would be a few Greens too. And if there were disciplined tactical voting, effectively non-aggression, then that provides the basis for a serious assault on the Conservative majority. But it would be very difficult to get, particularly if things don't change in Scotland. And I would hope that in preparation for that kind of election, there is an understanding um, about the necessity for electoral reform, which has got to follow the election if we do get a change of government. And as you say, it's very difficult for the Liberal Democrats to get much of a hearing at the moment. It's also difficult for Labour, really, but especially for the Liberal Democrats as the third party. Ed Davey has a real challenge there, which you probably more than most people can understand. And there's the more immediate challenge, of course, of the of the local elections and the Scottish and Welsh parliamentary elections that are coming up quite soon. So what would, I suppose, your advice be as a former leader to, to Ed Davey going into those? And also, how do you think that the Liberal Democrats will do in those? Well, I haven't looked at the numbers. It's a complex picture because, as you know, there are all kinds of different elections taking place, uh, county, district, metropolitan areas, mayors. So I don't think there's a, there's a kind of unified story there. But I would hope that the, the Dems make progress. As I say, we did in 
2019, made the best local government result we'd, we'd ever had, I think. And building on that would seem to be an imperative for progress. I mean, I do feel for Ed Davey. It is a very difficult job. I mean, I discovered when I got back into Parliament in 2017 that the, the change from the coalition years when I only had to open my mouth and, you know, half a dozen newspapers would be commenting favourably or unfavourably on what I'd said. But as leader of a relatively small party in the House of Commons, it was virtually impossible to get called by the Speaker, for starters, and then get anybody to pay any attention. We had at that stage a um, crystal clear message on Brexit, and you remember bollocks to Brexit, <laughs> which um, purists took some offence to, but, but actually was clear. I therefore had a national message along with a local government campaigning messages. Ed doesn't have that. He's really sort of trying to build in much more difficult circumstances. But his, his priority has got to be, you know, delivering good results in local elections, getting around the troops who are, from my experience, well-organized and in many parts of the country highly motivated and confident that they're going to make a comeback and his job is to turn that into into votes and councils. You talked about having a that very strong bollocks to Brexit message and of course the Lib Dems had a very strong clear message in the last general election. How do they form a new message for the electorate next time round and what do you think it should base itself on? I don't actually think the message we used at the general election, which was about revoking, was actually the right one, and I think it did quite a lot of harm. Hmm. I'm not blaming anybody in particular. It's a sort of conference resolution that got into our manifesto and we were stuck with it. And Anyway, that's history. I, I'm not sure that there is, a, there is a clear policy or ideological message which is taking shape at this stage. I'm not trying to avoid your question, but it's... It's it's not clear what we'd say. I think Keir Starmer has the same problem. I think he, like the Lib Dems, is is going to want to make a pitch for the issues around inequality, unfairness, the uh, starvation of the public sector and so on, but without coming across as wildly profligate and economically illiterate. It's quite a difficult balance. Um, The Lib Dems have got the same problem because, you know, we were in the distant past uh, very much into free things. Uh, There was a period when we were promising all kind of free stuff, and it's a very popular form of politics, but it's not sellable electorally. And getting a a balance between economic responsibility and raising people's hopes of a better future, which Labour has to do and we have to do, it's going to be tricky and getting it into a soundbite even trickier. So this, I guess, is actually both about the, the book. Who you, you write in the book and you've you know, tweeted and written before about you know, your partial admission for some of the things Deng Xiaoping achieved in China. And he's one of the, the leaders you examine in the book. One of the ways that politics has, has changed very rapidly is a, a sort of much more China critical position among all three political parties. You've been quite critical of that direction what, what do you how do you think British politics should should respond to Xi Jinping and the, and the rise of China you're right I, I, I do have a kind of countercultural view about China uh, I'm just in the last stages of uh, finishing a proper book on it which uh, will be coming out in September I mean of course there are some you know dreadful things in China 
were to believe what we hear about uh, the treatment of the Uyghurs in particular, and certainly in the latter stages of Xi Jinping's presidency, it has become more repressive. But I, I think there are many, many you know, misunderstandings, and there is a sort of an attempt to sort of mobilize a kind of anti-China front, which was very cleverly manipulated by Pompeo when he was Secretary of State in the Trump administration in support of Trump's trade war. And we've, to some extent, you know, gone along with it here. What I do argue is that, in a way, the model we should be following is the Merkel model, Chancellor Merkel's European statesman of unquestionable moral status, particularly after a history of her treatment of refugees. And nobody could accuse her of being immoral or amoral. But her line on China is that, first of all, our relationship is overwhelmingly economic. There's no security issue with China of any significance where Europe's concerned. And we shouldn't get caught up in the military and political conflicts of East Asia. It's none of our business. Stick to primarily to economic questions. And also to recognize that even if we don't like the government, we have to deal with them on kind of global public commons issues, if you like. I mean, climate change, they are the main emitters. They've given every indication they're willing to negotiate seriously about targets and delivering them. Uh, nuclear proliferation, which has, of course, come back into the frame in the last few days with the British addition to the problem. The Chinese are key players in that. The treatment of debt in Africa pandemic management. I mean, these, these are you know international issues that we have to cooperate with the Chinese on. doesn't mean to say we regard them as great friends. Um, it has to be done in a sort of practical way. But you can't do that when you're denouncing them from the pulpit as mass murderers or whatever. We, we just have to have a more realistic form of engagement. And as I said, I think the German model is a little bit more sensible than where the British seem to be going. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. section we like to call you ask us we have a lot of questions on the integrated review into britain's foreign policy over the coming decades many of which i imagine we'll, we'll address in the coming days weeks and months but this one i think is probably the most sort of immediately newsy which is 
The government's decision to expand the nuclear arsenal appears to have come out of the blue with little tangible explanation. Given the political sensitivity of nuclear weapons in Scotland, what is driving this policy? Is there any real argument for expanding a nuclear stockpile? And would it really affect Labour's popularity if they argued for keeping the stockpile as is? It's a really good question. And actually, well, <laughs> let's get the policy right. They briefed that the, the cap on the number of nuclear warheads that the that the UK can have at one time is being lifted, right? So that doesn't mean they're going to increase their stockpile, but it means that they can. And and the fact that they briefed that out was was a really, really interesting top line for me because it just made me think of all the past rows within the Labour Party over nuclear armament that like Stephen and I have been covering since, you know, the the days of Ed Miliband right through to, to now. And it's just it's just such a slam dunk for the Tories because I expect they think it makes them look like they're sort of serious about the UK's security and literally makes them feel tough talking about these things with phallic imagery and all of uh, of Trident. <laughs> but the, the real benefit for the Conservatives of announcing a sort of proposal like this or a sort of vague waft of the hand in this in this policy direction is that it just puts Labour into meltdown. Like I remember covering Ed Miliband sort of tying himself in knots over the issue before the 2015 election, um, there were all sorts of rumours about Labour trying to make a deal with the Scottish National Party at the time. And so you have the Scotland angle as well in there, which means that Labour, you know, has even more of an incentive to commit to Trident. But then, of course, there's all the voices on the left who, who want to pull it in the other direction. You also have the local issue of where the missiles are, are actually built, BAE Systems in barrow Inverness, which is the constituency that Labour wanted to keep hold of. So it's just an absolute minefield. Sorry for the <laughs> for the military pun there. But it's a minefield for Labour and it's, and it's politically very useful for the Conservatives to keep resurrecting this issue and... For something like this, this integrated review, I mean, it's quite a clever way to get people interested in, in what they have to say as well. It's sort of, sort of like a, a sexy hook. So I, I just think the politics of it are, are quite obvious and it will be interesting to see how Keir Starmer responds to this, uh, if indeed it does, you know, stick on the political agenda because it's so it's not a concrete policy. So unless there's sort of crunch votes that will make the issue even more fraught for the Labour Party, then it could just trickle away as an issue. But Alva, you were writing about what it means for for the Labour Party in terms of, of its response. How have you found it's responded so far? Yeah, I think that that was the right place to, to start in a sh- on how this sets Labour into a spin, or it could, because that was really my reaction when I covered this on Tuesday morning, when the news of lifting this cap was first being reported. And I think what we could see was parts of the press and the Conservative Party really coming at things from different directions, but ultimately fueling the same conversation, which is that this is a huge story that they have lifted this cap. And, you know, so reversing 30 years of nuclear disarmament, this like massive policy shift as it was framed. That was kind of how it was written up in The Guardian. It was also reported in The Sun and some other places. And that was, I suppose, the line that the Conservatives wanted and that was being fueled by lots of places coming from different ideological positions. And then Labour gets caught in the headwind of it because the thing that we haven't sort of 
said yet and which I hold my hands up did not really acknowledge at all when I wrote about this on Tuesday is that you know lifting the cap doesn't necessarily mean any meaningful change in the material reality of what's happening with Trident or the you know the actual number of nuclear warheads that Britain has it's just it's words rather than action but the words were taken very seriously on Tuesday morning and no one was really flagging that and so I, same as you, really saw it through the lens of thinking about how how difficult Labour finds this kind of thing, particularly thinking about the troubles it had on Trident when Jeremy Corbyn, a lifelong campaigner for nuclear disarmament, was leader. And there were so many sort of back and forths on that that I wouldn't even know the timeline anymore. But I suppose the general vibe was that Labour had its position that you know it supported the UK having a nuclear deterrent and would renew Trident and Jeremy Corbyn as leader had to pay lip service to this policy it was considered the right policy politically but his heart was plainly not in it and there were lots of individual moments down the years where he kind of couldn't follow through on that so he, you know, he couldn't commit to pressing the nuclear button if he were prime minister and things like that. So I was really seeing it through that lens and preparing morning call on it. I spoke to quite a lot of Labour people about the policy and it was really, really clear to me that none of them wanted to be talking about it. Um, <laughs> like really, in a way that I, I kind of felt felt quite a lot of sympathy, I suppose, because you don't need to be having internal conversations with people within the Labour Party to know what the position would be that they still support having a nuclear deterrent, but don't support rearmament or suddenly increasing the number of nuclear warheads that, that we have were leading to some kind of situation of nuclear proliferation around the world. That's plainly what the approach would be. But I had a real sense on Tuesday morning that it would be so difficult for them to get a hearing for that, that they're always being outflanked by the Conservatives on this, that if you if you don't want more nuclear warheads, you're not patriotic, and that Labour, especially given sort of patterns that we've seen in recent months, I had a real sense that maybe they would get slightly caught not having a position especially if these things come to a vote you know having to you know finding themselves caught out again and finding things painted as though they are opposed to backing our troops etc and fighting for Britain's place in the world you know opposed to that in in a week where also with the police bill we've seen that Labour's opposition on grounds that we were talking about on the last podcast Labour's opposition to that bill means that there are lots of obvious attack lines for the Conservatives that they've handed to them, unfortunately. You know, that, you know, Labour doesn't want tougher sentences for paedophiles and that kind of thing, because that's such an all-encompassing bill. But I feel, I have to say, a little bit foolish after doing Tuesday's morning call, because I think I hadn't sufficiently appreciated the difference between words and actions on that one. But also the, the fact that actually there was much more alarm at even the idea of lifting the cap than I had really anticipated. So lots of newspapers, editorials came out to express their concern, including the Times and the Sun. And I just hadn't anticipated that that would be where the public conversation went on it. So maybe it just isn't going to be the headache for Labour that 
that I thought it would be and that I could tell the people I was speaking to thought it was going to be. But it's probably too soon to tell what the what the longer political ramifications of this would be. What do you think, Stephen? Do you, do you agree with that? I think this was actually a genuine example of where people got more value now than, than two people do morning call. Because my essential view of this, which morning call readers will have got the day after, is that the nuclear announcement is, is, a, is a way that they can announce something that is superficially tough but free right i can say hey i'm increasing the number of my nuclear cap i'm going to go from having a nuclear cap of two nuclear missiles in this flat to five i have no plans or indeed understanding of how i would get uranium how i would enrich it how you know how my flat would become a nuclear power but but i'm i'm announcing and i'm doing this i'm well hard even if you take the view that the world's becoming more dangerous and 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 the case for the deterrent has strengthened you actually just can't really make a case that we would need 200 just just from a kind of cost perspective our current stockpile is is sort of unarguably a bit excessive seeing as we have four subs the point of a continuous at sea deterrent where you know the prime minister issues their their letters is that you can really only use it to strike back and you know you ain't going to be able to reload afterwards but it's free it's free twice over it's free because infrastructure spending doesn't count in the same ways under Rishi Sunak's fiscal rules. And it's free because, of course, as I hope I've sort of laid out, announcing you'll increase the cap doesn't matter. But I, it is true to say, right, that every time this vote happens, Labour does split on it. They don't split on it. I mean, they split on it on left-right lines, but they also split on it in kind of ways that go, you know, right across the party, right? There are current Labour front benches who, who broke the Labour whip last time this issue came to a vote. Yeah, there are people who've since left the Commons who we would definitely think as being on the right of the Labour Party who have it. So it's an issue where I can semi-understand the, the Labour leadership decision. But I actually think what this week has shown, right, is that this is where if you want to win in your Labour Party, you do need to find not necessarily the third way, but a third way, right? Which is this whole thing was, and it didn't work, right, was meant to be a distraction from, because it's very current considering uh, what our guests said, yeah, kind of the government going, actually... Yeah, it's bad what's going on in Xinjiang, but we need to trade with them. So, oh well. And a distraction from them going, we have global leadership, but um, we're going to retreat on international development, which means we will be increasing rather than decreasing the power and, and, and extent of China's debt diplomacy in Africa. But by the way, have we announced that maybe we could theoretically have some more nuclear missiles? And and I think the approach, and we saw this with the the you know with the criminal justice bill, where I think. Labour has successfully turned around some of the politics of that with this, this bill does more to protect statues than it does to protect women. Yeah, bluntly, that was always true. And I think that would always have been an effective line. And I think one of the things I think this week has shown is that Labour does better when it goes, okay, there's a cultural issue and it's difficult for us. How can we reframe it, get out of it, or if necessary, concede on it, than going, hey, there's a cultural issue and we don't like, how can we duck out of it? Because one of the reasons why, you know, because it wasn't just you, right? Everyone who covered it on day one went, oh, this can be a bit difficult for the Labour Party. Because the Labour Party's position was to go, oh, this is a bit difficult. They just have gone, this doesn't mean anything. Parking, how you feel about the policy, it's a meaningless announcement. It's a meaningless announcement designed to, to distract people. And ditto, you know, the crime and policing bill, right? There's the sort of draconian anti-protest stuff, which is banned in its own terms. But the tough on crime stuff, it's like, lads, this government can't successfully enforce the crimes it has on the statute book. People wait longer than ever for their first court date. I think Labour should have been fo- need to be focusing on making court dates, yeah, and the wait for it, mm. the sort of new NHS waiting list. Because you, you, you basically, with, with a cultural war, you either concede or you win it. You, there's no kind of middle option where you neither concede, you don't contest it, but it kind of, 
you know, it sort of passes on you over you sort of fight. And I think in another way, what this has shown is the government's overarching strategic vulnerability, right, is this huge amount of cuts to non-protected departments, which essentially mean that all of their kind of lofty ambitions, whether it's, you know, global leadership with the integrated review, violence against women and girls, right? You ain't going to do that if with seventeen billion pounds of of, of of cuts to unprotected departments. You just aren't. But the th- reason why Labour is, is is at the moment not taking maximum advantage of it, and that's partly, of course, because of the pandemic. Because it's, it's not like if they were doing any of these things, yeah, we'd be necessarily getting hearing from them right now. But in general, they do just need to find more ways of going. Okay, actually, you want this to be about being tough. We think this is about you fiddling the figures. And I think that's where Labour could and should be doing better on this issue, could and should be doing better on criminal justice in general. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. Our music is still Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Our producer is Nick Hilton. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.